0: Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Vergiss alles, was du über Arbeit weißt. Denn jetzt kommt das Update für dein Unternehmen. Mit Firmenfitness von Urban Sports Club. Profitiere von gesunden und ausgeglichenen Mitarbeitenden. Und Stress gehört ab sofort der Vergangenheit an. Egal ob Fitness, Schwimmen, Yoga oder Wellness, so geht moderne Arbeit heute. Mit Urban Sports Club. Erfahre jetzt mehr auf firmenfitness.urbansportsclub.com.
1: The Explanation is the podcast from the BBC World Service that goes beyond the spin, exploring the important questions about long-running stories and the latest global news, an honest explanation of the events shaping our lives. Search for The Explanation wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Hello. My guest today grew up on the English south coast in Plymouth, where her childhood love of the sea and its power has fed into a remarkable career, during which she's worked on harnessing that power to hopefully change the world. Deborah Greaves has spent much of her life working in the field of fluid dynamics, simulating what happens when ocean waves crash into solid structures, which can be both a destructive force, of course, and a means of providing renewable energy. Today, as professor of ocean engineering at the University of Plymouth, Deborah knows better than most how desperately we need to decarbonize our energy sources, and she believes our oceans can help. Wave and tidal energy both have enormous potential. In fact, in terms of the concentration of energy, waves are actually more powerful than either wind or solar. But so far, this wave energy has been difficult to generate on a large scale. That's what Deborah's trying to fix. Professor Deborah Greaves, welcome to the Life Scientific.
0: Thank you very much, and it's a real pleasure to be here.
1: Now then, Deborah, we're all familiar with the energy stored in in the ocean waves, particularly when they're crashing against the shore during a storm, say, but you're interested in harnessing this wave energy. How can we do that?
0: Well, it's quite striking when you you live by the sea and you're familiar with the waves, you see how they move and how they interact with structures and with the coastline. There's an enormous power there in the way uh, the beach can change, the sand level completely change before and after a storm. What we want to do in wave energy is try and convert that to usable power um, and we want to try and harness the power of the waves.
1: Given that we've known about this for a long time, how come we're not doing this already?
0: Well, it's difficult and it's very complicated. So the way the waves behave in the ocean is very complex. They're irregular, have randomness within them. They can be very, very uh, stormy, very strong waves, and also they're variable.
1: And presumably these technologies are very difficult to get out and put in situ in the ocean rather than something that's based on the land.
0: Yes, absolutely. So to develop a wave energy machine, um, you really need to get it to be able to survive in the marine environment from day one. It's very difficult to have a small domestic test that can Mm. be then implemented at sea. So for a wave energy device, we want to design it to respond actively in waves But we also need it to stay there and survive when those waves become really, really large. So it's a very, very uh, difficult design challenge.
1: Are things about to change? Are we approaching a sort of a wave energy revolution in technology?
0: Well, I think wave energy has uh, had its ups and downs in terms of how it's been supported, (laughs) Uh, but also in terms of the way it's supported and the way it's been developed. So there was a lot of work in the 70s in wave energy that sort of declined as we went into a different direction. And then in the the sort of late 2000s, then uh, wave energy became a more active area again. And there was investment Mm. through European uh, strategy and UK strategy. And what we've seen over the years is a number of concepts being developed. Some of them have fallen by the wayside, but all of the learning that we've achieved through those experiences has been captured. And in recent years, we've seen a more sort of um, phased, structured innovation approach where separate parts of the overall challenge have been addressed in turn in order to come to a successful uh, machine.
1: Okay, Deborah Greaves, you grew up in Plymouth, Presumably that's what sparked your love of the ocean?
0: Yes, absolutely. I was very lucky to be brought up very close to the sea with the sound of the waves. I used to sail twice a week at the local beach, dinghy sailing. Um, We spent a lot of time on the beach as as kids. We've got uh, three siblings, two older sisters and a younger brother, and we all uh, love the beach and love sea swimming. Tell me about your family, Deborah. What was home life like? I I actually come from a family of uh, arts-based and teachers, My parents uh, did English and arts and it was a very musical family as well. So I was really doing something different in wanting to do engineering and Mm. being interested in maths and physics and so on.
1: Were you the techie person at home? You know, were you the person that was asked to change light bulbs or fix plugs?
0: I tended to be, I suppose. I remember my, uh, my physics project was to design and build a hands-free light for my dad's house to go into his basement, so uh, using diodes and light-sensitive resistors and things, and giving myself a couple of electric shocks in the process.
1: <laughs> and it wasn't just electricity and electronics. I, and I love this story. While still at school, you once went up and knocked on the door of a local construction site to do some, some work.
0: Yes. Well, I, I was influenced really by a family friend who knew I was interested in maths and physics. And I also liked the idea of working outside and thought that civil engineering would be a good option. So I went and knocked on the door of a local um, building site when they were working on the interchange of the A38 through on the outskirts of Plymouth and asked for some work experience. And uh, yeah, we had a really good work experience spending uh, you know a, a week on the site, going out with the site engineers uh, finding out about how you can sort of translate the design on paper onto the ground and, and what all of that involves. So a really good experience.
1: Is it true they tried to persuade you to, to work in the office and just do filing?
0: Uh, it was insisted that on one of those days I should spend the day filing in the office, yeah.
1: Now that's not something you wanted to do, right? You wanted to be out?
0: No, I was outdoors. there because I wanted to be an engineer. Yeah. But yeah, there were some people there who thought I would be better in in the the in the, in the, <sighs> the office. <laughs>
1: Well, Deborah Greaves, this combination of of loving the outdoors, having a passion for building things, structures, meant that in 1985 you went off to Bristol University to study civil engineering.
0: So I really liked the idea of building things that last and have an impact. And when I was at school, I went to uh, a women in science and engineering talk at a local university, and actually there was a talk there from a, a female engineer, traffic engineering It wasn't something I was that inspired by, but she talked about how you could really make a difference to people's lives just by how you design the road layout. Replacing uh, traffic lights with a roundabout, for example, had a a real impact on accidents, Mm. number of accidents. So that idea of being able to use engineering to design things, to create solutions that make a difference to people's lives, was what inspired me, so while I was a student during my summer holidays, during my breaks, I got uh, jobs on site, so working as a contractor was part of the contracting team and Then, after my degree at Bristol, then uh, I went and joined a company called Maunsel in London, and I was working on tunnels, particularly uh, the Jubilee Line Extension, railway tunnels in London, uh, and also bridges. What
1: did the work involve? Do you have to go down into the tunnels?
0: We did go on a visit and that was absolutely fascinating to see how the tunnel boring machine works Mm. and how it scoops out the buckets of London clay. Really fascinating. Mm. And I gather this was
1: around the time that you met your now husband, Richard. How did you first cross paths?
0: I worked at Malta for a few years, then I went on site in cardigan for a year and then I took a year out, I went and travelled for a year, went round uh, Australia and, and Southeast Asia. And when I came back, I was lucky enough to get uh, my old job back. And then who should join the company? But my future husband, Richard, while I was at Mournswell's, then there used to be a, a five-a-side football group. And uh, I, there were a handful of girls there, always in, in the minority. But we didn't play football. So I set up a, a basketball team instead. And we started to play social basketball And uh, yeah, we met on the basketball court. Richard Richard met you on the basketball court.
1: I gather you did volunteer with Richard to go on a couple of summer expeditions to the Arctic monitoring glaciers.
0: Yes, that's right. So Richard had already been involved with the Arctic Research Group, which is a a voluntary group, and he'd been to Svalbard on a couple of expeditions. And I joined the team for two expeditions and, and went together. And we were doing a number of uh, research projects associated with the Arctic. So one of them was monitoring the progression of glaciers and a sort of early indicator of of climate change impacts, really.
1: How long were you out there for?
0: I think the first time we were there for a couple of weeks, but the second time we were there for a good month. So quite a bit of time. And, And
1: presumably a memorable experience.
0: Very memorable, yes. I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating place. Really, really beautiful 24 hours sunlight which is very difficult to get used to and a couple of close encounters with polar bears at least my husband did yeah so that was rather rather too exciting but we were (laughs) we were back at base camp trying to uh, to support them but anyway it all worked out okay (laughs)
1: Well, the love of the sea finally got a firmer hold on you and in 1992 you began a PhD at Oxford working on waves or more precisely working in this field called fluid dynamics. What exactly were you doing?
0: Well, I I was very keen to get involved in doing research in in waves and we'd quite like to do some physical modelling but there wasn't a tank to use so I, I got to learn about computational fluid dynamics and I did my modelling on the computer the sorts of uh, situation I was I was simulating was to do with the vortex shedding that happens behind cylinders in, in a fluid stream.
1: What, what does vortex shedding mean? So
0: the vortex shedding is uh, when a flow goes past a, a cylinder or a structure, you get little eddies that uh, mm-hmm. come off the back of the cylinder. So if you look down at a river flowing past piers, you can often see the little whirlpools, little eddies that flow off the back of the pier. And... Really fascinating to be able to simulate that on the computer. I always found it quite amazing that you could define the equations of motion and the solution would create these beautiful vortex structures.
1: That's one of the lovely things, isn't it? That nature speaks the language of mathematics. You you code maths into a computer, and the reason it looks like the real world is because the real world uses the same maths.
0: Yeah, I just always find that mind blowing.
1: You were working on a novel technique. Uh, this adaptive meshing technique. Can you explain what that is?
0: Okay, so the mesh is, is the grid that you use to do your calculation on. So you solve the equations at different points in this, this grid or mesh. And if the mesh is very fine, so the grid points are very close together, then you have more of them and it makes it more expensive to compute.
1: It's, it's more accurate, but it's more
0: accurate, harder to but calculate. It takes more time yep. and more computational space. To calculate.
1: Right. So that's the mesh. Uh, but the fact that it's adaptive.
0: So ideally you want to target your mesh so it's finest where the action is, where right. the most interesting effects are going on. And when we're simulating something like a flow past a cylinder with these vortex trails being developed, then they change in time. And so we can actually adapt the grid so it also changes mm. in time and is always, ideally, always giving you the best most rational layout of the grid to sort the solution.
1: And it all works and you you, you get the computer simulation of a fluid.
0: Yes, absolutely. So you, uh, you follow the solution with the grid. Uh, And you can actually see the solution in the grid. So I used that technique to develop this method for uh, separated flow. So flow past a cylinder, which created Mm. this vortex shedding. And I also applied it to uh, steep waves. And in that case, it was the refinement around the water surface that was the thing I wanted to refine.
1: Straight after getting your PhD at Oxford, you landed this lectureship at University College London. That's pretty unusual, isn't it, straight out of a PhD to get into teaching?
0: Yeah, I was very lucky. I mean, while I was at uh, Oxford, I was able to get some experience teaching and doing tutorials in the colleges. And I started out with a PhD. Then I also had a a research contract that I sort of secured halfway through the PhD. Um, So then I went and, and was lucky to get a Lecturing job straight away uh, at UCL, which was great, and that was in the mechanical engineering department, but in naval architecture, so teaching naval architecture students.
1: By naval architecture, what do you mean? Shipbuilding,
0: hydrodynamics, wave structure interaction, ship stability and flotation, right? Submarine design, actually, but manoeuvring and sea keeping, that sort of thing.
1: At this point in your career, you, when you're at UCL, Deborah, you, you, you and Richard were planning to start a family. And you wanted to move out of London. Why was that?
0: Well, we had our first child, Sam, and we soon sort of decided that really we'd rather be living somewhere else to bring up our family, to bring up children. We wanted to have more children. And uh, we loved living in London very much, but probably felt that uh, we weren't making the most of living in London while while bringing up children. We were always trying to get out and, and find some green space.
1: You landed a, a job as a research fellowship uh, that took you to the University of Bath, so this is a Royal Society fellowship, very prestigious. This is the point where you start looking at harnessing the power of ocean waves as a renewable energy source mm. that it, It's that point in your career isn't it Yes,
0: yeah, so this is the, i've always been interested in doing that that's the the area I really wanted to work in is with waves but also in renewable energy. And I managed to secure my first research grant, which was targeted at uh, wave energy and developing numerical techniques in order to understand and to be able to apply them to the challenges of wave energy machines.
1: You have this Royal Society Fellowship. I mean, what advantages does that give you?
0: Well, that was was a great opportunity to work part-time and we were able to have our our next two children, so we have three boys, and I was able to sort of juggle my maternity leaving and working part-time throughout that period.
1: You had your family, you had your your three boys. Family was obviously very important to you because by 2008 you felt you wanted to move down closer to your mum in Plymouth.
0: Yes, well, we used to go on holiday, of course, down to visit my mum by the seaside uh, every year, and we always thought it would be lovely to spend more time Um, The opportunity came up, a great job opportunity at the University of Plymouth to uh, join a team working focused into marine renewable energy and trying to really create some impact. And also, by coincidence, the house next door to my mum uh, also came up for sale. So we ended up buying that house (laughs) and living right next door. So it's been lovely.
1: Very, very convenient. You, You began at Plymouth working with these physical experiments as well as computers... So now you're doing both the real world and the simulations uh, and you built what became known as the Coast Lab. Can you explain what that is?
0: Yes. Yeah, so when I first uh, went for my interview at Plymouth, in fact, I was asked to talk about wave tanks and the importance of wave tanks in the renewable energy. Well, of course, I hadn't actually done any work using wave tanks up to this point. All my work was uh, computational fluid dynamics but of course it's a very important part of the development of anything that's going to be working in the sea so for wave energy devices or other offshore structures then uh, we need to look at develop the concept do numerical modeling and then building a real model of the device uh, and testing it in a wave tank so what we do in, in the coast lab we have a number of of wave tanks and flumes there but the largest is a small swimming pool. It's 35 right. metres long, 15.5 okay. metres wide and 3 metres deep. And in that pool, we can, we've can we got a whole set of wave paddles which generate complex sea states. We've got a, a current generation system as well. And we're just about to install uh, a wind generation system to go with that as well. So we can scale down the environment that would be experienced in the sea. So we can scale that down to laboratory scale. Uh, We can build a small-scale version of the machine or the structure that we want to test and put it into the wave tank and run a series of tests. And we can learn an enormous amount about how the structure will respond in a variety of different wave conditions uh, that it's likely to experience in the sea.
1: Is there a benefit to using these physical models in in a real wave tank compared with your fancy computer simulations?
0: Yes, well, the the two go hand in hand, and being able to do both and to develop a team that, that has expertise in, in both is a huge benefit. With the computational modelling, there are limitations in terms of the models that we can run, some of the simplifications we might need to make, and as we were saying before, the computational cost and expense. So the physical demonstration helps But of course, the laboratory-scale physical demonstration also has its drawbacks and limitations. There are scale effects that can't be precisely reproduced. But putting these two things together, you can get a much better and a much richer picture of what's actually going on.
1: Okay, so let's have a a closer look at wave energy. You know, if we think about um, wind energy, we all know what a, 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 a wind turbine looks like. What about the equivalent for wave power?
0: Well, for wave power, one of the problems is really that it can look very different. We might design some sort of oscillating body that could look like a a floating buoy or it could look like a long snake-like device with a number of sections reacting to one another. It could be an oscillating water column. In this case, uh, we have an air chamber which is trapped above the water surface. And as the water surface oscillates up and down that uh, changes the volume of the air above it. Or well, like we, a piston. Exactly pushes, like a piston, Right. Yeah. Another type is the um, overtopping type of device, and that could be a very large floating structure or, again, a seawall-type structure in which the waves break into a, a reservoir container and then get drained down through a, a low-head turbine. So they can look very different, very different depending on the the way the energy is converted, And they can also look very different depending on where they are. Um, And one area that we're working in at the moment is in flexible wave energy devices, uh, devices which are perhaps air-filled, constructed from flexible membrane-type materials. They can be cheaper and lighter than steel. They can also have very good uh, properties in terms of how they respond to extreme waves and their survivability in in, uh, storms. But this is really quite novel.
1: I mean I'm getting the impression there is no standard design yet.
0: No absolutely there's no definitely no standard design and that's perhaps a challenge for wave energy but what we're seeing now is that wave energy is being developed for a range of different applications so not just looking at the large utility scale machines uh, but also providing power to help decarbonize oil and gas platforms, power to support aquaculture offshore, fish farming, power for small islands and isolated remote communities that up till now would rely on, on diesel.
1: You've talked about how difficult it is to test these things out in, in the open ocean. Uh, and The Coast Lab surely can't be a substitute for the real thing. So what's the best way to solve that problem?
0: We need to uh, test things in the open ocean as well, of course, and we have test sites for example there's the european marine energy test site up in orkney uh, but even then even after testing in the sea then the devices will often be tested again in the laboratory so there will be quite a bit of iteration between what goes on tweaking the, the sea, design tweaking the design yeah, and yeah. maybe trying to reproduce the challenging conditions that were experienced in the sea mm. to understand what, what's gone on Now then,
1: Deborah, you're also director of something called the Supergen ORE, the Offshore Renewable Energy Hub, which is just a great name, if nothing else. (laughs) So what does that do?
0: Well, the hub programme is a programme funded by EPSRC, the, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council. And it really aims to bring together the research community across the UK working in offshore renewable energy with industry and with policy. So uh, really making sure that we are targeting our research uh, so that it's helping to address the challenges experienced by industry, but also uh, supporting fundamental research that might find some real game changing impact at the short term as well. If we
1: look ahead into the future, when you talk about offshore renewable energy, you know, is there sort of an ambition to have some, you know, a giant ocean energy farm that combines extracting energy from the wind, from the waves, from the tides, Mm. all all in one integrated uh, system?
0: Yes. Well, quite often the the place that you would put a wind farm isn't not necessarily the same place that you put a wave farm and and not necessarily the same place that you put a tidal stream uh, farm. But on the other hand, th- there are many savings and benefits to be gained from um, sharing the infrastructure, uh, the operations and maintenance and, and other aspects that, that might be um, done mm. by showing the, the same space.
1: I'd have assumed that, you know, with the places offshore where it's windy, there are also going to be big waves. Maybe that's too simple.
0: <laughs> yes, but if you're designing your floating offshore wind farm, it's going to be more challenging to design it where the waves are big. But on the other hand, if you have a wave farm there, then you might be able to reduce the energy in the waves by extracting some from your wave energy converters. So there can be a a benefit in sheltering or shielding the wind farm. But also, of course, the the marine seabed space is so valuable and there are so many other users and values in the marine space, not least the important marine ecosystem itself. So we need to really think about how to optimise our use of the seabed space and we are looking at co-locating offshore wind with wave energy and aquaculture and other uses and also looking at things like energy islands and can you actually combine a lot of these things together in a sort of island offshore. And a physical
1: are island? Are you possibly a about?
0: physical island or a very large floating structure. Right. There are all sorts of concepts uh, being looked at in uh, different parts of Europe as well.
1: You've talked about your vision for what the future of renewable offshore energy might look like. How soon do you think this can happen?
0: Well, uh, we have very ambitious targets for the development of offshore wind. Uh, Within the UK government strategy, then, offshore wind is very much a backbone of decarbonising the electrical grid. And We have targets by 2030 to have built out 50 gigawatts of offshore wind. Uh, It's difficult to imagine what that means, but at the moment we have about 14 gigawatts of offshore wind. So in the next seven years, six and a half, where are we? If we're going to meet the target, we need to sort of almost do four times that. Uh, Wave energy is an important part of the, the mix in the future because it brings an important uh, element of diversity and also further resilience for the UK but at the moment there's a huge amount of focus on building out floating offshore wind.
1: You've had remarkable success during your career Deborah but it hasn't always been an easy ride. In fact not long ago you were diagnosed with cancer. Are you happy to talk about that?
0: Yes I I, I mean I, I was diagnosed with cancer in 22 so just over a year ago and that was quite a shock coming out of covid and and the uh, the lockdowns that we had uh, to then be sort of hit with with cancer was was not nice but yes i was i was lucky in that it was a very very early diagnosis so mm. i encourage everyone to go for their their regular checkups and uh, scans and so on and uh, you know going through chemotherapy and and so on it's quite a grueling process but you know i've been able to carry on working quite a lot of the time i mean i've i've i think everyone's experience of of cancer is is very different um and really you just have to keep doing what gives you energy and try and keep your energy levels up
1: what sort of things
0: we love camping we love water sports by the love being by the sea going to the beach for my 50th birthday treat uh, i did a skydive with my my then 16 year old son and that was (laughs) probably the most intense uh, (laughs) exciting thing but uh, yeah just just spending time together
1: well your boys of course have all left home now and uh, at university so you're empty nesters you and richard do you still spend a lot of time near or in the water in plymouth
0: yes we do we we've got a a lovely dog who's a water dog really and she loves the sea and we spend a lot of time on the beach i like to uh, collect sea glass and, uh, and pottery as well uh, but yeah it's fantastic to be living by the sea again and to have been able to move back down to Plymouth with my family.
1: And next door to the place where your, your research is focused out there in the ocean which yes, is hopefully absolutely. going to provide us with all this energy.
0: That's uh, endless inspiration for what we should be doing.
1: Deborah Greaves thank you very much for sharing your life scientific world has eaten up and spit out a lot of young and attractive guys
0: this is the story of one of fashion's dark secrets
1: i was overwhelmed like i had never seen anything like this
0: at the height of abercrombie and fitch's success
1: this was me being carefully manipulated being lied to tricked and traded like a commodity
0: investigating allegations that would take me into a world of money sex and power this is world of secrets Season one, The Abercrombie Guys. Search for World of Secrets wherever you get your BBC podcasts.